Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I trust that you have had a good Tuesday. Even if your Tuesday has not gone as expected, maybe it's been a difficult day for you. We are glad that you are listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and specifically to this program, That's Truth, live interactive program. I'm Nathan Owens, and as usual, I'm sitting across the desk from Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who listen to the program. Before we jump into or return to our topic from last week, Pastor, we have a question from last week, the carryover that you wanted to expound on a little bit more. The question was, good evening, Romans 5.13, can you shed some light on the part that sin was not imputed to man before the law, which I assume is the Mosaic law. Can I also assume that the law in our conscience may have ruled before this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a little bit of investigation further into the passage of Scripture. And um, quite frankly, if you read the whole context of uh, Romans chapter 5, you're doing a comparison between Adam, who's the federal head, of humanity and Christ, who's a new federal head uh, as a result of the second, uh, the new covenant. And the point that Paul is making uh, in that passage is that there was no law from Adam to Moses, yet there was death. Okay. But the wages of sin is death. So how do you explain that without law, there's no sin that is imputed to somebody, anybody, because you only commit sin if you break a law, but there's no written law there's no sin. It's like in Antigua, if there was no law saying you shall not steal, and I was stealing or you were stealing, I would never be charged with a crime or trespassing or, or violating any particular law. And that's what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying here is this. Even though there was no law until Moses, the fact that man died was dying in the case there was still sin in the world. But how was that sin then imputed to man that man died? And the answer is this. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. So we bear the responsibility because Adam is a federal head. It's like if the Antiguan government goes to war with another country, the whole of Antigua goes to war. We are all implicated because we're part of the whole system. And that's what Paul is doing in that particular passage. He's saying that the fact that there was death in the world and there was no law yet, uh, if there's no sin imputed because there's no law, then how come that people died? And the answer is simply that when Adam sinned, we were in Adam. And we are a sheer part of that responsibility. So that as a result of Adam's sin, we inherited a sinful nature that 
causes us to die even though we don't violate a law, basically. And the law came, of course, in the time of Moses. The, the, the important truth of that is this. Because Adam is the fellow head and we are all implicated in his crime, Christ is no fellow head, we are also part of his redemption. So the person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ now sharing all the benefits of what Christ accomplished for us. And that's why Paul is using a parallel there in that particular passage. So the whole emphasis is to emphasize the fellow head of Adam, that we were implicated in his sin when he sinned. Uh, we were guilty in Adam, and that sinful nature was passed on to us. And uh, the, the, the value of that, of course, is pointing out that Christ is a new federal head, and therefore all men can have redemption uh, who put their faith and trust in Christ because he's a new federal head. Pastor, for the listener who's just tuned into the Radio Lighthouse for the first time and says, are you calling me a sinner? Is, are you saying that every single person on earth is a sinner? Without exception, every human being that ever li- lived or ever will live uh, is born with a sinful nature. Uh, contrary to a lot of the philosophers, a lot of the educationists who tell us that we were born as a blank sheet. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are born with an inherited sinful nature and that we are inclined towards evil from the time we were born. You never have to teach a, a, a small child how to do wrong, how to lie, uh, how to misrepresent facts. I got a small one who's only two years in our home, and I can tell you quite frankly, she's doing some things that I'm sure she never learned in the home. And uh, that is part of the sinful nature that she is. And that's why all men stand guilty before God and in need of redemption. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.37. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. We're going to jump back to a topic that we started last week, and that's the topic of another cult, the World Missionary Society Church of God. It is a cult originating from Korea. Is that correct, Pastor? Yes, correct. And, you know, the other, if I might jump in here just a yeah. moment. I was thinking a little bit, there's a parallel between that also and the Sun Young Moon, which is also a South Korean cult. Uh, he said, uh, Sun Moon said that he was the Messiah that was promised from the book of Genesis, who said that the star will come from the east. He's from the east, and he's the star, to be honest with you. So it's not surprising. And not only that, remember that he has been eminently successful uh, as Sun Young Moon, uh, what they call the Moonies. And uh, certainly this guy uh, seems to have fallen in the same line, learning from um, Sun Young Moon how to capture the minds of people. And I think that um, that explains why he claims to be the Messiah, because if they accepted him, Sun Young Moon is the Messiah, well, they'll accept me as the Messiah as well. So he came in, in train, and of course, it's a very wealthy uh, religious organization, uh, both Sun Young Moon's group and now this group as well. If I just tuned in this week and didn't hear last week's episode, Pastor, you shared a lot of information about this cult last week. Can you give us just a brief summary? Well, the very gist of it is that it's a a new uh, religious movement um, that was started in in Korea um, in the 1960s. Um, The guy that started it was a guy called An Sang Hong, and uh, after he, he passed away in 1985, uh, it was taken over, and um, the, his bride, a lady called Zingal uh, uh, Ja, um, she, along with the new found new person who took over, began to push the idea that there's not only a uh, a father god, but it's a mother god, and she is the mother god. And they take Genesis, where man was made in the uh, made in the image of God, male and female. 
Uh, they said there have always been a male God and a female God, and uh, they are now the representations of that male God and that female God uh, on planet Earth. So it's a heretical teaching, quite frankly, because if you read Genesis, quite frankly, um, there's no male and female God in, in there. It said that God made man in his, in his own image, made them both male and female. So there's no reference whatsoever in the Bible that there's a female God and a, a male God. Uh, it's just a distortion and, uh, and so on. But the movement is now here in Antigua, and they're pushing uh, very fervently this concept that there's this female God that is uh, currently offering the water of life. They take the Revelation chapter 22, the spirit and the bride the spirit is now uh, this gentleman who is now leading and the bride is uh, this lady Zangil Ja and the two of them are supposed to be offering the water of life in this final age and remember that they are here now at this time they are the only true church on planet earth offering true genuine salvation uh, to people it's uh, what you call the restoration of some uh, truth that was lost, or every cult without condition, are always claiming that they are a restitutionist uh, organization that God has called for a particular time. You find that it's true of the SDA, find that it's true of the uh, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, all of them claim that they're here restoring some special truth that was lost. Uh, and the truth of the matter is God has always had a remnant according to the election of grace. And there has never been a time in human history where God's truth has not remained, um, even though some have apostatized, uh, because God has uh, made sure that his church will never uh, be, be squelched. And he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So basically, Nathan, this is, this is a false doctrine. It's offering a new theology. But it falls in line with the modern thinking about feminism and the empowerment of women, quite frankly. So I think it is, is getting headway uh, because of that feminine element that's added to the Godhead. As you were talking about these two cult leaders who have uh, claimed to be uh, Christ or reincarnation of Christ, it got me thinking, I wonder how many people have claimed that. And I just did a quick Google search here while uh -huh. you were talking. and. I came across a list, and it said this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, it didn't even mention either of these men, but there was over 80 individuals on there that have claimed to be the Messiah and Jesus Christ. Does that contradict the Bible? Did the Bible, the authors of the Bible, expect this to happen? Yeah, well, look, John says, uh, when he wrote the epistle of John, he said, even now are there many false Christs in the world. And Christ warned in Matthew chapter 24 that prior to his coming, there be many false Christ claiming that they're Christ. So the Lord has warned us in Matthew chapter 24 that, uh, that there would be an escalation of people cl making messianic claims in the end time. And that is one of the signs, not of his rapture, but of the second coming. But if we're seeing it now, and it's a sign of the, of the re revelation, clearly the rapture is much nearer than we think. But uh, there's no surprises about that. The Bible warns about it. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, talks about the man of sin who's going to come, who's going to claim that he's God, uh, etc. So there's no there's no um, indication uh, in the scriptures that it will not be uh, following this particular pattern. And this pattern confirms the validity of the scripture and the fact that we have an infallible book that warns us ahead of time of things to come. As we finished out last week's episode, we were beginning to compare exactly what this cult believes and comparing it to the doctrines of the Bible or the doctrines of Christianity. You talked about God and the fact that they claim a male and a female uh, God. You talked about Christ. 
what about the second coming? What did they, what, how do their teachings compare to Scripture? Well, as far as the second coming is concerned, as I mentioned before, uh, the whole idea is that the second coming has already been fulfilled. And they believe that, by the way, if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 to 27, if you read that for just a moment, that's one of the verses that they use. Hebrews nine twenty-five to 27 reads as follows. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Yeah, but you see that he'll come a second time without sin unto salvation. Uh, That is a reference to uh, this this guy that founded the religion that he came the second time not to deal with the whole the whole question of, of sin but to bring salvation so the first Christ came to deal with the sin question this second one has come now to offer the salvation the first one uh, brought which was uh, to deal with the sin question so they take uh, that's why you know cults are known for that taking scripture stripping it from the context and applying it to themselves they don't have a biblical hermeneutic that is consistent and that allows them to to just use the Bible willy-nilly to teach any particular doctrine they want to. And that's why we must always tell people that you must have a biblical hermeneutic when you interpret the Bible. The Bible is a book that must follow certain principles uh, when you're going to do a proper interpretation, and the cults completely ignore that altogether. Can you give us just a real brief overview of what a proper approach to the Bible would be? I know you did a whole topic, and I'm going to give the listeners the episode so they can look yeah. it up. But Well, I think when it comes to the biblical interpretation, the, the, the key thing here is to understand that the Bible must be literally interpreted unless there are uh, specific reasons in the text itself that would indicate that it has some uh, symbolic or some allegorical meaning. But we believe in what is called the historical grammatical method of of, of interpretation, which means that you follow the grammar of the Greek language or the Hebrew language, and we understand the words and the uh, teaching in the context of the historical times in which those people uh, existed. So if there's something in that passage you don't clearly understand that relates to some social custom or some historical event, you study that uh, that social custom or that historical event to give you an idea of what that teaches. The other important thing about uh, interpreting the Bible is context. You always read what comes before, and you always read what comes after. That's how you really get to decipher exactly what the author is speaking about. The third thing I think is vitally important is is using what you call parallel text. Uh, Finding uh, other references in the Bible that deal with the same word, or deal with the same idea, or the same concept, and see how that is interpreted uh, in that particular particular passage. Um, I think those are the three core uh, principles that would help most people in their understanding of the Bible and understanding the Bible and uh, teaching the Bible properly. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I will give it to you later in the episode, so stay tuned exactly what episode 
uh, Pastor spent talking specifically about that in depth. I'll give it to you later. Pastor, anything else about the second coming you want to mention before we compare another doctrine? No, I think I think that is... By the way, if you go on their website, you can not see that, that this is exactly what they believe and what they teach. There's nothing that we are saying here trying to distort truth or misrepresent what these people really believe. But they actually believe this Lord has come, the second coming, and this particular person founded the religion. What about the New Testament bride in Jerusalem? Well, I think last time we, we mentioned that, and we pointed out that they use um, um, the passage in Revelations chapter 22 and the reference to the bride there, and also in the book of Hebrews talking about the Jerusalem that's above and calling her the name her. They connect the bride coming down, which the Bible talks about in Revelation 22, and describe that as a new Jerusalem coming down. Uh, they describe that person as the Lady Zangil Jah, that she is the bride, and she is the Jerusalem that is referring to there in that particular passage. So she is the mother God that is coming down. Remember it said the spirit and the bride um, in the last part of Revelation said, come and take out the word of life. This guy that is presently, he is a spirit. She is the bride. So you've got the spirit and the bride on earth at this point in time offering people the water of life. They've now brought salvation. Christ came for the first time and he dealt with the sin problem. But now they're now, he, they're now here dealing with and uh, giving the water of life. So the two of those people are both the spirit and the, uh, the bride. She is the mother God and he is the father God. Feast days? Yeah. This church celebrates all seven feasts of uh, that are mentioned in Leviticus. Uh, there's the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacle. Uh, they believe that all of these feasts are part of the New Covenant, and uh, therefore their church observes that. Remember that I mentioned that they have elements of Herbert W. Armstrong. Yeah. Herbert W. Armstrong, also Worldwide Church of God, they also call for the reinstatement of these feasts. So they used to observe the feasts. Remember, there's also a group called the Yahweh group. Okay. Yeah, they also re- now are also practicing these seven feasts. I believe it's part of the um, ongoing uh, part of the new covenant. So this seems to be a concept that's borrowed and integrated um, into this movement as well. What about the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath, they believe, is the, uh, we in worshiping the Sabbath, and uh, they believe that Sabbath is the true day to worship, and the Sabbath for them is actually Saturday. There are some religions that speak of the Sabbath being Sunday, but they're talking about, about uh, the actual Sabbath day. The difference between them and the SDA and maybe the Jews, they celebrate it from sunrise to sunset. The Jews is from sunset to sunrise, but they do it uh, sunset. So the Jews go from 6 o'clock until the morning. They go from sunrise to sunset. Quite frankly, they observe it that way. But they believe that it's a sign between God and His people, and it's a perpetual sign, and therefore um, it's necessary for those who go to that particular church to actually observe the Sabbath. So it's not just that it's a preferred thing, it's a must. It's a must, it's a must. Uh, They just believe it's it's a a mandatory. What do they believe about mankind? I know a lot of these cults have some very skewed thoughts that contradict the Bible. Well, in connection with mankind, they believe that men were originally created as angels in heaven, 
and um, they sinned against God, and therefore they were punished by being placed on earth. Do they have a verse for that? <laughs> there's, no, <laughs> there's no verse for that, but of course, that is quite similar to the Mormon teaching. Okay. That yeah. we were spirits in a spirit world before, and then we were uh, sent down here, and this is our probationary period, and we are supposed to be evolving from our humanity to become like gods again. But every god has gone through this cycle according to the Mormons. So they seem to borrow this concept. Uh, from the, the, the Mormons as, uh, uh, and blended it in their own unique emphasis. I might say, uh, Nathan, that I mentioned the Sabbath. Remember that uh, the gentleman that founded this religion used to be a Seventh-day Adventist before, so the element of the Sabbath, the Sabbath was borrowed from the Seventh-day Adventist and brought into this movement as well. What about baptism? Well, they believe that baptism is the first step towards salvation, and it must be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But remember, for them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same. It's just different mo- mo- uh, modes of expression. But uh, salvation for them is, is, is mandatory when it comes to this whole matter of uh, being saved. It's a first step. So, not baptized, not saved. If you're, you're not part baptized, of- you're not saved. It's part of the requirement. What about the New Covenant? Well, the New Covenant uh, is where our Lord, uh, we establish the Passover. And they believe the that's why the Passover is also, the observance of the Passover is also a central part of being saved. You can't be saved unless you observe the Passover. But they believe that uh, our Lord, we established the pa- Passover. And as a matter of fact, all the other feasts that belong to Israel, he also, we established that under the New Covenant. So, uh, as far as they're concerned, um, the Passover is an essential uh, to be observed. As a matter of fact, they actually teach that it is partaking of the elements, just like the Catholics, is actually partaking of salvation because the elements represent Christ. So, it's again, they borrowed that. Uh, I mentioned that borrowing a woman and making her almost a god was yeah. borrowed from Catholicism. There's another aspect they borrowed from it, the importance of the the, the, the the Eucharist, as it would say, the sacrament, so that you have to partake of these elements because in doing so, that's how you're getting salvation as well. So you've got baptism, and you must also go through this process of, of, the, of the Passover. And do I remember right that you're saying that this cult is getting established in Antigua? Well, it, I think it's trying to get. I'm not sure what, what kind of a foothold it's going to get in Antigua, but it's here in Antigua, and it's now um, um, going around, they're very, very evangelistic. Very, very. It's almost there's a passion they have that is. It's very, very strange how cults have so much passion, but it's like they have found a new revelation. Especially this idea is a mother god. This is their main thing that they're pushing here in Antigua. Is a mother god, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so I don't know how long before something. You know, I never thought the Mormons would get a foothold in Antigua having the Bible, the open Bible, but look, they've got a Mormon church here already. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have a pantheon of religions in Antigua over a period of time, including this new religious as well. You just used the phrase Mother God, uh-huh. and it made me think of the phrase Mother Earth. Pastor, do you think a Christian should ever use that phrase Mother Earth? No, I think it's, I think it's, it's using jargon that has certain... Uh, secular connotations and certain idolatrous connotations because don't forget a lot of the new um, religions are going back to the ancient times like you want to no one the women especially feminist movement know to have goddesses and the idea that uh, back then uh, people were so much attached to nature 
So the idea of going back to nature is it's very prominent, especially in the New Age movement. And for Christians to use those words so glibly, they, they, by association, people can connect them with these different movements, and uh, it could actually be detrimental to the testimony. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is a live, interactive call-in program every Tuesday evening here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua. 1160 kilohertz AM and 92.3 megahertz FM. You can also listen to the Radio Lighthouse online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, you can also go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and follow the Facebook Live video feed, and you can listen to the program, watch the program, and comment your questions right there. If you have a question and you'd like to ask it, you can call and be put live on the air by calling one. 1- Two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. One other area that I'd like to compare, Pastor, uh, between this cult and the the biblical view and if you've just tuned in we're talking about the world mission society church of god what do they teach about salvation well as far as salvation is concerned it's really a work salvation members are thought that in order to receive salvation you require certain things number one you've got to tithe number two you've got to observe the sabbath number three you've got to observe all the old testament feasts and uh you also got to uh partake of the communion and of course, as I mentioned before, baptism is the first stage. So it's actually what you do rather than what Christ has accomplished and you put your faith and trust in, in Christ's finished work on the cross. So it's a really a works form of, of uh, religion. And uh, most cults, quite frankly, uh, that's what Christ is. You know, it's very, very sad that when you talk to certain about certain groups, Christ is totally obscured. And some other emphasis is always there. And, uh, and we must forget, must not, never forget that Christ must be the one who must receive the preeminence, as the book of Colossians tells us. But uh, there's a work salvation as far as uh, this particular group is concerned. One other thing I would like to say, Nathan, uh, has to do with prayer. Uh, they declare that you must now pray uh, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? And Sang Hung, the guy who was the pre Remember that he was Christ. Right, he's a current, and remember that as well that he's Christ is the Father and Christ, but he's now in spirit form because he came in second coming. Now he's back in, in spirit because this is the time of the spirits in this age and this generation. So you don't pray to God the Father, you pray to the Spirit, you pray to this particular person to get your prayers answered. Quite frankly, so it's uh, you know it's so bizarre that you wonder how um, any relig- any any cult of this nature could get a footing in uh, the Caribbean country that has had the Bible for so many years and, and substantially have had so many good churches in spite of having the Baptist, they've got the Wesleyan Church, you've got um, even the Lutheran, I would say, um, have some very good doctrine. But uh, it puzzles me how a group like this can believe they can come to the Caribbean and get a footing here and start a church with all of this false dogma uh, being uh, advocated by them. Even though this may sound backwards, Pastor, is there a danger in having been exposed to so much truth here in the Caribbean? Well, if you have been exposed to truth and you're not responding to truth, it's the sun 
melts the ice, but it hardens the clay. And I think that people who are exposed to truth, uh, if they're not responding to the truth, uh, quite frankly, they can be judicially blinded. Remember in Second Thessalonians, <clears throat> when the Antichrist comes on the scene claiming that he is the Christ and sitting in the temple claiming that he is, is God, remember that the Bible said God should send them strong delusion so that they believe the lie because they have not believed the truth. And I think there's a line that eventually is crossed that when a person refuses to accept the truth and believe the truth, I do believe that there is a, a penal penalty, mental penalty, that they, they, they lose uh, the capacity to comprehend the truth and embrace the truth. That's one of the great dangers of hearing Scripture and knowing Scripture and knowing God and knowing the Bible and uh, ignoring and uh, not following and living by the biblical principles. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp, kind of a thank you message to you from a listener. I listen to your program Tuesdays and Saturdays. It's awesome to me. I learn a lot. Also, I listen to Pastor on Sunday evenings. Keep up the good work. I'm 66 years old, listening from Glansville, Antigua. I've been listening to the station from its beginning. Thank you for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for the word of encouragement. And we are glad that you're listening and continue to encourage others to tune in to the program also. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8 p.m. Anything else you want to mention about this cult? Let me me mention something else that I think is really interesting. Um, And that is the phenomenal growth of this movement. It's just striking. When they started in, in the 60s, in 1964, they had one church. By 1970, they had four churches. By 1980, they had 13 churches. By 1990, they had 30 churches. By 2000, they had 300 churches and 400,000 members. That's in Korea alone. Um, the latest stats that they have given, um, in t- 2007, they had 100 churches abroad. By, 200, by 2008, they had over a million registered members outside of Korea. By 2013, they, have, have, they now have 2,500 churches in 175 countries. Now, that is staggering. At present, there are 3 million followers and 7,500 churches altogether. How does a cult like this uh, mushroom coming from one in 1964 to now uh, 3 million followers plus 7,500 churches. Uh, I mean, this is, this is totally incredible. But I think that is the indication of the zeal that these people had and the fact that the message is tailor-made made to the modern way of thinking in respect to the feminist movement and the idea of the ascendancy of women and putting a woman as a uh, as a very prominent person. I think that uh, that's indicative of the times in which we live. The apostasy has already started, and it's just going to grow. It's just phenomenal to expect that to happen. Do you think it would be safe to say that some of their growth could also be due to uh, spiritual influences? Oh, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, if you were the devil and you were trying to, you know your time was short, uh, and you have an incredible mastermind, uh, I have an idea. You've been you've been observing man for the last 6,000 years. You know all of his weakness. You know what appeals to him. Uh, quite frankly, you will ex- exploit that by using people. And every false religion, behind every false religion, there's a satanic spirit, and uh, the mastermind behind it is Satan himself. So I don't doubt that whatsoever. Is this organization affiliated with any other organizations that you're familiar yeah, with? Yeah, there's several organizations I'm going to... Um, 
try to pronounce some of them. <laughs> uh, but there's one called the Oikion Go and Come Training Institute. There's also the, the Junison Training Institute. There's the Elohim Training Institute. There's the Church of God Theological Institute. There's the Church of God History Muse- Museum. There's the International um, um, Welcome Foundation. There's also the Messiah Orchestra that is associated with them. And then there's the Assez and World Mission Society. And then the Assez and... Um, some other group as well. But these are some of the, the names that are associated with this particular group. And you would never, by looking at these and hearing these words, you would never associate them with this particular cult. And I'm not too sure if they're hiding behind language uh, because I would not affiliate these terms like Elohim uh, and those kind of terms. I would not associate with this group. But that's, that's the, some of the associated with them. Earlier in this episode, I was asking Pastor about proper ways to interpret the Bible, hermeneutics, and I told you I would give you the episodes. If you are interested in a more in-depth answer on how to properly interpret the Bible, Pastor did a series of three episodes back in 2019 on this topic. You can go to our website, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, our You can Google Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You can go to www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's a large picture of a microphone, and right in the center of the screen, you're going to find a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you will see a link for That's Truth Podcast Archive. And look for episode number 61. 62 and 63 and they are interpreted how to study and interpret the bible part one two and three and there are 176 episodes there on different topics so if you have questions about a particular topic uh, feel free to go to that resource we've made it available for your ability to share with friends and family and also to study on your own and so you can go and do a word search on the page and hopefully find a topic if you have a topic we haven't discussed or you're not sure if we've discussed it and you would like us to discuss consider discussing it please contact us whatsapp us text us and we will be glad to consider that topic the whatsapp text number is 268-782-1454 pastor as we wrap up this cult I know you've referenced it throughout your discussion on it, but what in the world is so appealing or attractive about this movement? Well, I I find it distasteful, uh, and I don't know why other people find it attractive. I think, from what I'm hearing, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I think the element of the pushing a female god, because you know they're trying to degender the Bible as well, and they're also trying to use feminine terms to create a Bible that describes God in the feminine language. I think all of this is part of this global uh, apostate conspiracy to uh, redefine God, redefine Scripture, and quite frankly, uh, humanize the Bible and secularize the Scriptures. And I think that this group uh, has an advanced um, 
insight that this is probably where it's going to trend in the future. You want to cash in very early, so you're the first one to start this. I would not be surprised if you don't get some other groups starting when they see how successful this has been to keep adding that female element as well. As we go on towards the end time, I don't doubt about it at all that the feminine uh, aspect of all aspects of religion is going to be pushed. That's why today, for example, um, you've got women in the pulpit, uh, preachers in the pulpit and almost every major denomination. I think the last standout right now is Baptists. And even them are beginning to fold. And it's all because they're trying to make the Bible fall in line with the social um, advances within society. So it's, this, it's the culture that is infiltrating the Bible rather than the Bible infiltrating the culture. And of course... I just think that this religion is just uh, falling along that same trend and they found it to be very successful. There's a picture on the website that when you see the amount of women, 70% that belong to this cult are women. And if you see the picture, I mean, the church is huge, but it's like a whole sea of women faces right in front of the, 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 uh, the church itself, quite frankly. So I think that is part of the appeal. I can't think of any other reason why. Why would I want to go back under the Old Testament law of observing the seven feasts, uh, the rigidity of keeping the Sabbath? Uh, why would I want to do all of this? kind? Of, why would I want to believe that uh, this man was a reincarnation of Christ, quite frankly? The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation, so... You know, so the only explanation I have, Nathan, is that uh, besides the fact there's a spirit behind this, an evil spirit, I do feel that the attraction is the feminization of the scriptures and the feminization of the Godhead. As we have wrapped up that topic and now move on to another one, uh, this next topic is one that was brought to our attention by a listener's question last week about the topic of forgiveness. Something that, uh, man, it applies to every one of us, Pastor. Uh, it applies to us young or old, uh, whether we're educated, uh, how highly educated we are. It applies to all of us, whether male or female. If you are in a relationship, if you have friendships, uh, maybe you had friendships, maybe you don't anymore. There are uh, definite needs. There is definitely a need for forgiveness, Pastor. What is meant by forgiveness in the Bible? Well, the best way to understand uh, forgiveness, quite rightly as you just indicated, we got to go to Scripture and see what the Scripture teaches about this matter. And when you do that, you find that there's seven different words in the Scriptures that uh, denote the concept of forgiveness. There are three in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, and there are four uh, in the New Testament. In the Hebrew, uh, one of those words is the word kepar, K-A-P-A-R, and uh, it means to cover, uh, that you cover over something. So the idea is to cover over sin, quite frankly, or cover over an offense. The second uh, word is the word nasa, N-A-S-A, and it means to bear or take away uh, guilt basically. The third one is Selah, S-A-L-A-H, which means to pardon. Those are the three words in the Hebrew language. Uh, the one that is used both for God's forgiveness and human forgiveness is the word Nasa, N-A-S-A. That's the one that's used, which means to bear or take away. The other two Hebrew words are always used exclusively of God. So that word nasa uh, would be the word uh, to bear or to take away guilt, basically. That's the uh, Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, 
There are actually four words for forgiveness. Uh, the first word is apollyan, and it means to put away, uh, basically. Uh, the second word that you would find uh, there is the word um, paresis, uh, which means to discarding something, discarding something, throwing it away, basically. The other one is shirazestai, uh, uh, which means to forgive sin. And the, the one that is used most common is the word aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S, and it means to send away or to let go, quite frankly. We're talking about about bearing the hatchet, basically. That was the word. That word in particular is used 15 times uh, in the noun form and over 40 times in the verb form in the New Testament. So this is the most common word, the idea of uh, letting go or sending away. And what was that word again? That word is aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S. So when you look at the uh, the word in the New, in the Old Testament, basically uh, NASA, uh, we talked about that, which means to bear or take away. Notice that the same word is used in the New Testament, aphesis, is the same word means to let go or send away, basically. Uh, so the same idea here, forgiveness has to do with sending away guilt or getting rid of guilt, basically, or um, um, letting go of whatever you're holding on to. That's the whole idea behind uh, forgiveness. What does the Bible teach about forgiveness? Well, uh, the the Bible uh, tells us, quite frankly, that there are two types of forgiveness in the Scripture. There is where uh, we need forgiveness from God, and we need pardon from God. And, of course, we can only be pardoned by God through repentance, confession of our sins, and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But then the Bible also teaches our obligation to forgive others. Uh, We have been forgiven so much. Uh, by comparison, uh, God now obligates us as a because, because we've been forgiven that we will now learn uh, to forgive others. If you look at Colossians uh, 3, 12 to 15, Nathan. Book of Colossians 3, 3, 12 and 13. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do ye. I think that's very, very plain. Yeah. So the standard by which we forgive is the same standard by which Christ we receive forgiveness. It's a high level. It's a very, very high level. But note we are called upon to do that. And look at Ephesians 4, 31, 30, 32, I think that's the verse. Ephesians four thirty-two. Yeah, I think that's the verse. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So clearly, uh, there is the need for forgiveness from God, where we, uh, and but we also need to understand because we've been forgiven, we are now expected and obligated of God to now uh, extend forgiveness to others as well. So that is basically what the Bible teaches us that we we have to learn to forgive. No, no if ands and buts. No, no. <laughs> um, I, I look. I, I think the, the older you get, and you the, uh, in the Christian faith, and the more you see yourself and understand how really truly depraved you are, mm. the thoughts you entertain sometimes, even at a very late age in your life, 
that you realize that, man, you're just a piece of clay. And it's by the mercy of God that you haven't been like other people, quite frankly. So you you have a a deep sense of your own unworthiness, to be very honest with you. And I think that in itself almost facilitates you understand that, how can I not forgive somebody, to be very honest with you? uh, So I think that that is rooted. Once you've had forgiveness and understand true forgiveness, there should be that spirit of really wanting to forgive. Brother Williams, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good night. Good night, Jimmy Panel. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing, Brother Williams? Not too bad on you. Not too badly. Yeah, uh, Pastor, uh, I would like you to answer me if you can. Uh, remember when Jesus Christ go up on the mountain and pray with three of his disciples? Yes, sir. I can remember the verse, but the... You know, uh, I know, the Mount of Transfiguration. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he go out to go further and he come back and pray and he tell them, he made them sleeping and he tell them, if he cannot stand up at one hour to pray, to watch and pray with him. Uh-huh. Is it that a Christian limited of prayers to be, to be, could last one hour? No, that, that is just, uh, that is not a absolute statement saying that a Christian should limit prayer to one hour or less than an hour. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to study all the prayers in the Bible, and they're very, very short. That, that's the thing that strikes me. You, you study any of our Lord's Prayer except the high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17, and you will see it's a very, very short prayer. You study all the prayers in the, in the Old Testament, and you'll discover that they're not very long prayers. So he's not trying to set a standard or norm that we should pray within an hour, stay within an hour. He's just expecting to them, you know, I here's here I am in my dire need of my most dreadful hour. I'm about to face death. Uh, I've never, uh, quite frankly, known what it is to sin because I'm impeccable, I'm holy, I'm God myself, but I'm going to take the sins of the whole world. Remember that during that period of time, they said that he sweat great drops of blood it means as though he's under so much stress, uh, as though his, his his blood is now going through his vessels and coming to his skin. He's under so much pressure. What that means, we could never truly fathom. But I suggest to you that it's a battle between his divinity and his humanity. And that's the clash that happens in that moment. And the time he needs the disciples most, they're sleeping. So he's, uh, he's just reminding them that the flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he's not setting that as a particular time frame uh, for there to be prayer. Because uh, you try praying for an hour, my dear brother, and you'll see that within once or twice, you're going to almost fall asleep. <laughs> or you're going to lose your thought. No, I'm serious. It happens, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but he's not setting a particular time frame there. And again, I'll take a challenge ask you to uh, read the, New Te- the Old Testament prayers and see the men when they prayed, you'll see that they're very, very, very brief, but to the point. Uh, we don't have to use a lot of words. And that's what our Lord warned about in, in, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you know. It's not the amount of words that we utter. It has to do with our heart condition before God and our relationship with Him. Mm. I mean, you don't have to go to your daddy, your real dad, or your child doesn't have to come to you and speak a lot of fancy words to you. If you're in a right relationship, Take and say, Daddy, can I have this? Bam, you have it. But you don't have to come and say, Daddy, you're the best daddy in the world. You're the sweetest daddy in the world. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Buttering you up and et cetera, et cetera. So no, uh, there's no uh, particular time frame that he's advocating or normalizing in that passage. Okay. Thank you for the explanation. You're welcome, sir. God bless you. All right. Say hi to the wife, please. Yeah, okay. You too. Have a safe time. Yeah. Thank Na- you. Yeah, Nathan, I want to add, you know, that 
uh, there's no book of religion except the Bible that teaches that God completely forgives sin. You can check any other non-Christian group and you'll find there's no other book anywhere that teaches God forgiving uh, sin in its totality and its completion. Is that why other religions become works-based? I have to... Yeah, I, I think that there's no question about that because there's no grace in those religions. I mean, everything is about what I do and I have to... It's a treadmill of, of works, quite frankly, and, and that's the beauty of the Christian faith. But because it seems so simple... Uh, remember when um, Nathan, uh, Elijah told Nathan what he needed to do, uh, you know, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and he, he actually felt his pride was pricked. I mean, yeah. why uh, I'm just big captain of the army, and I dress with all this, why must I go down this muddy Jordan River? His pride was affected. And he said, you remember what the girl told him? I think prophet, I told you to do something big. Would you have done it? Well, he just tell you go and dip in the water seven times, and he did it. I think that's the problem with humanity. Tremendous pride is the, uh, the blockage to true salvation. And there's something about you feeling that you are doing enough to satisfy God that brings a bizarre sense of satisfaction. But when it's dependent totally on Christ and just faith, you know, and, and that that's what it is. And thank God it's by faith because if it was not by faith, how many works you got to do to get to heaven? How many works I got to do to get to heaven? When right. we get up there, be competing. Where, where will we sit? Who will we rule? Uh, it's all by faith so that all men can believe and put their faith and trust in Christ. And I'm very thankful that it is by faith and faith alone. We're talking about forgiveness. And, Pastor, are there any conditions on forgiveness from the biblical standpoint? And if so, what are they? Yeah, from a biblical point, three things are required when it comes to dealing with God. Uh, I mentioned repentance. You, you, the Bible makes that very clear. Christ thought, except you repent, you're going to perish. And repentance has to do with a change of mind that results in a change of purpose and direction. It's not just a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that evidence itself in the change of purpose and direction. The second thing is, is confession. And confession is admitting what you've done is wrong. You're agreeing with God that what God said is sin, and what I did is sin. So I'm confession to God that I stole and uh, it is wrong because you said it is wrong. And, of course, the third element when it comes to uh, this whole matter with God has to do with putting your faith and trust in Christ. So you have to repentance, confession, and faith and trust in Christ. That's what brings total and complete uh, forgiveness of a person's sin. When it comes to human beings now, the two things are, quite frankly, repentance and confession. Uh, there has to be repentance if there's going to be forgiveness, and there also has to be some kind of, of confession of sin. And that, I think, is the one of the big problems that uh, people have today, that we glibly say we're sorry. Sorry for what? Right? I mean, really, what are you sorry for? Uh, there's no specificity as to what that is. Consequently, because we operate on that basis, we never take any matter of repentance, even with God, seriously. Uh, and I think that is one of the great mistakes that we're making. But the, the preconditions of uh, forgiveness when it comes to people uh, is repentance and confession. We have a question from the Southern Caribbean. Good night. I have a thought about forgiveness. While the Bible says forgive 70 times 70, 
I do think there's a point whereby enough is enough. You can forgive and not continue to walk with them again. Would you yeah, agree? Yeah, well, look, uh, the Bible is saying to you, or read the passage very carefully, if the person says, I repent, Oh. See, don't forget that that's the that's the condition stated in the passage. You know, if you go to your brother and your brother hears, listens to you and hear your position, it's always conditional, right? So don't uh, the seventy times seven is not seventy times seven doing you the same thing and that yet no, it doesn't say that. It says if he does it and he repents, then you are obligated to forgive him seventy times seven. But if there's no repentance, quite frankly, you're obligated to hold him until he's willing to repent. So it's not a carte blanche saying you just 70 times 7. Read the passage very carefully. You'll see that repentance is the precondition you granting this uh, unconditional uh, willingness to forgive. Is it possible to forgive someone and not let them back into your life in that previous role? Well, look, the, 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 the ultimate goal of forgiveness is really uh, reconciliation. Uh, Christianity should not stop at mere forgiveness. Reconciliation, we'll talk about that uh, hopefully sometime uh, in, in the program. But I can see where a person has forgiven a person 70 times 7, and they keep doing the same thing again. I can see a person saying, you know what, brother, I forgive you, but quite frankly, I don't want, I don't feel I can restore the relationship as it used to be. I'm not your enemy. I don't want to be my enemy, but I'm not comfortable with relation because you keep repeating. I can see that happening, quite frankly. Um, so I think that is possible, but I think it's not the ideal. And in a fallen world, sometimes the ideal is not possible. Paul said, as much as life would you live peace with all men, but if some people can't live at peace with. Yeah, that's, that's why true. he said that's possible, right? If it's possible, live at peace with all And there are people that you you want to forgive, you forgive and forgive. But again, uh, it is very, very clear that they don't value the relationship because they keep messing up the relationship all the time. So I think that is a factor. It can come to the point where you can say, look, I am disposed to forgive you. I have a mindset to forgive you. I'm a spirit to forgive you. But when it comes to our relationship, I, I, I can't restore it uh, as it used to be. I can't normalize it. Uh, if you want something and I can help you, I will help you. But we cannot go back the way we used to be. I think that is possible. It's not the ideal, but I think that is possible within a fallen world. You mentioned that the New Testament word for forgiveness was uh, along the lines of to let go or to send away. Uh-huh. Uh, any further thoughts? Well, the idea is releasing the f- offender of uh, whatever that person has done. Uh, is actually leaving the event in God's hand and moving on, basically. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's not... Remember, forgiveness is not just excusing the action of the person or forgetting what that person did. It's not permitting that person to keep repeating the same sinful action again and again. It's not guaranteeing that there's going to be reconciliation either. Uh, it's not putting ourselves back in a situation where we can be harmed. Uh, as someone said, the victim of a crime has no obligation to become a friend of the criminal, right? Uh, so the fact is here is that you're trying to let go rather than this thing eating you up. Uh, you're burying the hatchet, so but that doesn't necessarily mean that you forget everything the person has ever done. We'll talk about that in just a moment because people are saying that forgiveness means forgetting. We'll talk about does the Bible say that? There's no verse in the Bible that says that when you forgive, you're going to forget. Well, they said that God will remember our sins no more, but we're not God, okay? And nowhere does God require us. As a matter of fact, it is virtually impossible to forget what somebody's done to you. True. What happens is you have to, time heals that the 
pain is not there. And there are times that if the person really shows what is called fruit of repentance, that you can actually forget, hey, the situation. But it's not going to automatically happen that I forgive you, therefore I forget. That's a myth, and I don't know where that came from. Uh, so, so it's not always that you can do it immediately. It takes time. And remember that when it comes to repentance, the proof of genuine repentance is fruit. See? Uh, you must produce fruit of repentance. So just merely saying, I repent and I'm sorry, is no evidence that I have genuine repentance. When I see the fruit, that, that and that is what will bring about the capacity to forget when you really see that this person is really, really genuine. You referenced that just a little bit ago that you may not necessarily put yourself back in a position where you can be hurt. I heard uh, a while back, or maybe I read it, I don't remember for sure, but to really be able to love someone, you have to be able to open up to a position where you can be hurt. How do you reconcile those two thoughts? Well, I, I, I think when it comes to like a marriage, that, but I don't know if that is a carte blanche situation in, in every case. Again, look, uh, there are people that hurt people, but at the same time, they're repentant. You can actually see that they're trying to do something to mm-hmm. mend whatever it is. That's a different situation than the person who keeps hurting, 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 but never ever makes any kind of change. Right. So I think you've got to deal with two different situations that you're dealing with. And remember that we'll never have perfection down here, Nathan. Let's put it that way. We'll never have perfection. We must try to achieve the ideal. But there are some very difficult people that you just, no matter how you try, ain't working. Right, and and uh, you just got to accept that, but don't hold the bitterness there and the anger there, but accept the fact that this relationship is going to be tense, uh, it's going to be fractured. Move on from there. Treat the person with love, and remember, treating the person with love doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have feelings towards the person. The Bible is very clear about that, right? When you treat a person with love, you treat them as you want to be treated. You're kind to them, you're thoughtful to them, etc., etc. But it doesn't mean that you're going to have all these lovey-dovey feelings. That's a myth. I don't know where people get that from. Biblical agape love is a matter of the will and not of feelings. The feeling love the Bible talks about is phileo love and uh, uh, Philadelphia love, quite frankly. But agape love is love of the will that keeps the interest of that, the object uh, makes that first and primary, but um, it doesn't mean that you're going to have all these kind of feelings. Piggybacking on that topic of feelings, what if I don't feel like forgiving? Doesn't it make me a hypocrite if I end up forgiving them? I think that uh, equating um, your feelings with hypocrisy and believing that if you act against your feelings, therefore you're being a hypocrite, I think that is a, I think that's a false comparison. You can never be a hypocrite if you follow what God asks you to do. Let me repeat that: if God tells you to do something and you do it, you are obedience to God. Obedience to God can never be hypocrisy. So if God tells me I need to forgive and I forgive, but I don't have the feelings. I can't wait for feelings then to forgive. I must I must obey God because God is first and primary and preeminent. And if God wants me to do something, and I, I do it even though... Look, by the way, um, reading your Bible against your feelings, you always feel like reading your Bible? No. Praying. You always feel like praying? No, but you do that because that's what God expects us to do, and God directs us to do that in obedience. So the idea of because I don't have feelings, therefore I can't forgive, 
and if I don't have the feelings, I find it impossible to give. That is, in my mind, a copped out. And in, in really fact, it's a rationalization of bringing yourself from under the obligation to forgive, uh, etc. We kind of brushed on this earlier, but I think it'd be good to develop it a little further. What are the conditions of human forgiveness? Yeah, well, we mentioned before uh, the whole matter of um, repentance and uh, confession. I want to talk a little bit more, Nathan, about um, uh, confession, if you don't mind uh, dealing with that. When we talk about confession in the biblical concept, it means to acknowledge and it's an admission that what we have done is wrong, okay? That is what uh, confession is. And you can't have true um, biblical forgiveness within a human relationship without repentance and confession. And I think this is where we, um, we don't help restore biblical thinking by the nonchalant way in which we deal with issues on that personal level so that uh, if a person were to demand of me uh, or you, quite frankly, okay, you want forgiveness. The Bible says you, there must be repentance and admission. Are you willing to admit that was wrong? Now, if we would do that, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, I think it would help people to understand that when they've sinned against God, the need of not just saying God is sorry, but actually prayer like David prayed in, in Psalm chapter 51. Read that prayer again and see how broken David was and how we confess and confess and confess and confess. But we live a very lackadaisical uh, spiritual life today because we, uh, we treat each other on a very superficial level and we don't make demands of in line with Scripture. As a result, that carries over in our life with God. And I think that's one of the big mistakes we made. But confession is something that is uh, fairly essential. Could you look at Psalm 32 and maybe verse 5 to 7? Book of Psalm 32, verses 5 and 7, 5 to 7. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of the great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. And verse 7, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. The key thing there is that notice he's confessing and confessing and confessing. If you look at uh, Psalm 51, verse 4 and 5 with David, read that as well, please. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightst be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Verse 5, Behold, I will sharpen my iniquity, shapen my in... in let me start that verse over. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right, again, confession. Now, let's, let's look at um, James 5.16. Going down to the New Testament, the book of James, chapter 5, and verse 16 says the following, Confess your faults, one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Again, again, uh, confess your faults one to another. So here, what, 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 the, the word fault there, by the way, uh, in the Greek language, is the same word that is used in Ephesians 1, 7 and Ephesians 2, 5 for sin. Hmm. So the, the, that's what the same word that you find there is finding in Ephesians 1, 7. Look at Ephesians 1, 7 for just a moment, please. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse seven. number 7 says... In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See the word sin there? Same word that you find there in James. No different than that. Look at chapter 2, verse 5, Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. See the word sin? Same word as used in James. So here, not only you confess to man, I mean to God, as David did in those Psalms, but you know, talk about confessing to, to your brother if you sin against him. Also look at Luke fifteen eighteen. Luke fifteen eighteen. Yeah. Says Prodigal Son. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Notice the twofold there. I've sinned against heaven and before, and before thee. He's confessing to his father he's wrong. That is a biblical principle when it comes to the matter of forgiveness, that the person who is uh, offended, if they want true forgiveness, they must be willing to make the confession, and, of course, there must be the element of repentance. Um what strikes me, and by the way, to confess means to admit or acknowledge, and it really means literally to say the same thing. So when I confess to God, I'm saying the same thing God says about what I did. So if God said that lying is wrong, I confess and agree with God that lying is wrong because God said it. So the same thing when it comes to uh, like a person's offense, take a, take a wife or a husband, um, might use an example which is very common he's cheating on her mm-hmm. right if he really wants true forgiveness uh, he can't get true forgiveness until he's willing to say you know I, I, I did this I was wrong I should not have committed adultery whatever it is the wife needs to hold him to that because if she just give, okay I forgive you take it from me he'll keep repeating the same thing again and again he hasn't felt the gravity of the situation until she insists look I am willing to forgive you but you, there has to be confession. They have, and, and, and then the other thing, of course, they have to be repentance. Repentance means a change of mind and a change in direction, a change in purpose. So you can't tell me, no, you commit adultery, and I forgive you, and you keep doing the same thing again. You have not repented, and quite frankly, it's a false confession, right? So I think that is where um, we as human beings uh, need not to lower the standard. And I think in lowering the standard, in indirectly, we have facilitated the low level of spirituality people have between themselves and God. They just think that because they can get away with this with human beings, now they can do it at the same level. So there's no gravity about the whole situation. Uh, Listening to you talk there, brought up this question. Would you say that it's true that a believer, a Christian, can understand forgiveness on a level that a non-believer, a non-Christian never could? I believe so, mainly because... When you understand the depth of your forgiveness, I think that's the key, quite frankly. And I think as you get older in the Christian faith, what puzzles me most is that uh, the older you get in the Christian faith, I, I can't. I can only speak for myself. The worst you think to seem to think of yourself because you see things that were 
weren't wrong before to you. But now, quite frankly, you're seeing things and you know, and sometimes the thoughts that run into your mind, you say, but where in the world at my age? How can I be thinking something like that? So it makes you realize that even though you're a redeemed being, there is still this residue of the sinful nature that creates this in you. So, And you, you're thinking, but if God knows every thought in my mm-hmm. mind, and, and then you look at a person who is maybe half your age or whatever, you find it, no, no I can be a much more. In other words, I think as you get into the Christian faith, it makes you mellow. Not that it makes you want to slight sin, but it makes you more understanding of how really depraved and weak people are. And that, therefore, you're more inclined and willing to forgive than even when you're a young Christian, quite frankly. It, it, it just should be, quite frankly. I think the Apostle Paul was that way. Uh, and I don't remember the references right off, but there's three verses that I remember studying in sequence where he said, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm I'm a bad sinner, and then I'm the chiefest of oh, sinners. Yeah, that's in Timothy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where yeah. you follow that chronological progression, where he speaks more strongly of how sinful he was, the more mature he was in the faith. Yeah. Um, just mentioning something here with the confession, uh, Nathan. It's interesting that if you look under the Levitical law, right? Uh, there was only con- uh, forgiveness if there was confession. And in some cases, if there was restitution. Look at Leviticus 5.5 for just a moment. Oh, that would change our world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Leviticus 5.5 says, And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these things, that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. Right, so he had to confess. Look at Numbers 5.7. Numbers 5, 7 says, Then they shall confess their sin, which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him again whom he hath trespassed. 20%. See, there's a case where somebody has stolen something, but you see that in every case there, under the Old Testament law, there had to be confession, and where it is possible to make restitution. You made restitution. That hasn't changed when it comes to the New Testament. We've got to confess to God. We've got to confess to each other. But again, under the Old Testament economy, that was held strictly by the priests. Uh, Today, we don't um, make those kind of demands of confession, but I think it's one of the great weaknesses. The other one, look at Leviticus 16.21. Leviticus 16 and verse number 21 reads as follows. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Same thing, there's no forgiveness without confessing. And in the case of Israel, uh, the high priest plays that role, yes. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua Codrington. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, I want to find out if um, Jesus, if he's disabled, because I just want to know that um, he said that um, you must love your enemy like how you love, you know, love your enemy. Somewhere in the Bible, I don't remember which verse it said. So uh-huh. I just want you to just clarify on that for me. 
if he loves if if God does what if he loves the devil. The devil is, 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 is his enemy. Uh, I don't see any reference anywhere in the Bible that there's any kind of a love relationship between God and the devil. The devil is the um, uh, unchangeable enemy of God. Uh, he has no repentance for him. There's no repentance for the fallen angels. Um, so I, I, I can't... All I can tell you what the Bible teaches on this matter, I can't tell you. You're, you're trying to take a biblical verse, which is love your enemies, and uh, whether or not God loves uh, Satan. I don't have any reference anywhere in the scriptures that indicates that. I just think he's the implacable enemy of God, and he's doomed. And um, even if God loves him, there's, there's nothing to, that can change him. Uh, he's not going to experience the grace that we have because he is a spirit and not a human being. Um so uh, I don't I don't have any any indication in the Bible there's any love relation between God and they're always seen at warfare etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know if that helps you, but I can't go beyond Scripture in that matter. Okay, um, wanted to know. You remember when um the people did the name was doing um uh, when he was having them in the desert and so when they were sinning against um Moses and they turned their life on to I, I think you're distorting scripture, uh, quite frankly. There's no reference in the Bible about the, God using the devil in that particular case. God's people were rebellious, and God brought judgment upon them. God loved his people, but that doesn't mean because God loves you, he doesn't punish. When we do evil, there are consequences to going against God's will, and that requires, that requires in some cases, chastisement. In the case of Israel, it meant the death of many of those Israelites because of their willful disobedience. And remember that these are people that saw miracle after miracle. I don't know how a people can see miracle after miracle, the level that they saw, and yet in such a quick period of time, their faith has evaporated and evanesced. And they are calling upon, uh, they want to go back to Egypt because they like the leeks and the garlics and they're making a, a golden calf, etc., etc. I don't see any reference uh, that there's any indication to do with Satan there whatsoever. For example, I don't like Satan. I hate him. He's my enemy, okay? And I can never say I would love him either because he's the enemy of God, therefore he's the enemy of mine. We just don't need to confuse. Uh, there's some things we should hate and some things we should love. Uh, we should hate evil. Uh, but um, so I, I don't think I think that we're going beyond scripture in that realm we're trying to philosophize uh, the idea that because God is love he must love he, he, Satan who is the very embodiment of evil I don't think that is true I think love also manifests itself in what it hates and I think that God despises and hates the enemy who has uh, led this rebellion against heaven and created all this massive confusion down here on earth and uh, led to the betrayal of man 
there's no redemption for him, and uh, there's no love lost between him and God either when it comes to that matter. Codrington, thank you very much for your call, and continue to listen to The Lighthouse. Continue to encourage others to tune in. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.46. We've got about 13 minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. If you have a question, hurry up and call 268-462-7420. That'll put you live on the air. The phone line is open and available again. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268 782 We're talking about the topic of forgiveness, something that all of us have experienced or need to give, uh, share with others. I guess there's multiple ways we could phrase that. Pastor, what is the ultimate goal of forgiveness? The ultimate goal of forgiveness really is what we would see in the Bible called reconciliation, which has to do with a change of relation between persons who are at enmity with each other. I mentioned before that... um, the elements that must precede this reconciliation is confession of sin, uh, is repentance, and uh, that leads to help you establish a new relationship. Now remember that reconciliation has two elements of it. It means that the enmity that was there must be replaced by peace, and the alienation or the separation should be replaced by fellowship. So that is really the ultimate goal of, uh, uh, you know, uh, forgiveness. It's not just to say, I forgive you. The ideal that God wants us is to go beyond forgiveness and come to a point of reconciliation where we are at peace with each other and we have fellowship one with another so that there's some kind of restoration uh, to be fulfilled in that, in that area. Is it possible to define exactly what true repentance looks like? Uh, I think that true repentance um, has to do with a change, uh, but it also has to do with a manifestation of that change through producing appropriate fruit. I think that is how you can really know true repentance. It's not just verbalizing that I'm sorry uh, and saying, you know, I am gonna, uh, I'm, I'm going to change or I'm going to change, uh, move in a different direction. I think that ultimately, if you have true repentance, there must be some visible fruit that that person has really uh, had true repentance. In other words, there has to be some real change established. If that is not happening, you will always revert to the old ways. So as far as repentance is concerned, the key thing here is fruit. See fruit, and that fruit is indicative of um, whether that person has generally changed or not. It's a question from a listener. I understand the purpose of the genealogy in the book of Matthew, but why the genealogy in the second half of the book of Nehemiah? Am I supposed to study in depth the history of each of these people and their families? I um, I can't give you a specific answer to that because I am not privy to that particular passage at this moment. Um, what I would say to you that generally speaking, if it's you've got a genealogy in uh, Nehemiah, I know in one section it was mandatory to know who would become the priest. 
As a matter of fact, some people were removed from the priesthood in Nehemiah because they did not have the proper genealogy. Oh, yeah. Right. So I think that I'm, I'm speaking here from what you're saying. I, I remember that in that particular passage, uh, people were actually removed because according to the Levitical law of the priesthood, you had to come to the line of Aaron. And uh, if you don't come to the line of Aaron, you could not be a priest or you could not be a Levite. And there were cases in the book of Nehemiah where people who claimed to be priests had to be removed from the registry because they were not part of the priests. Uh, so that's why important of the of the genealogy. The other thing I would say to you is that um, in restoring the land and the property to the Israelites, um, it was not necessary, of course, to know what tribe you belong to. God made it in such a way that people would never be poor indefinitely, and one generation might be poor, but it would always be restored. The land could not be sold from within the tribes. So if you sold yourself into slavery because you found yourself impoverished, at the year of Jubilee, everything that you uh, own returns to you so that your, your, the next generation has to go through the same cycle of poverty. Now, we don't have those kind of laws today. It would be, be, would be really good laws if we could institute them. But part that is also why you needed the genealogy as well to know exactly the location and the property rights, etc. It's not necessary for you in your Bible study to to know all of these particular things, just to have the idea, the general purpose behind it. Uh, and the other thing is that in Leviticus, uh, sorry, in Nehemiah, I'm not too sure. The genealogy is always important in the scriptures to trace the line of the Messiah. And that's why they would also have these genealogy because he's coming through the line of Shef, coming, Shem, coming through the line of, of Judah and the line of David. So it was important as well to know this genealogy so that when the Messiah comes, this credentials will be proper and they would know whether or not he's a true Messiah. So it's helpful, but don't burden yourself with all of those names, etc., etc. Um, it can actually become a discouragement trying to figure out all of these particular matters. Just have the idea the basic principles of why they're used. A WhatsApp question from Europe. Good evening. Matthew 5.42 says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that borroweth of thee, turn not thou away. As an example, a person asks me money on the street. I don't know the intentions for what he will use that money. Should I give it to him anyway? Could Pastor name some other examples? I, I think that, um, let's just think about that for just a moment. Um, I have the same situation you have. I've always got people asking me for something, especially outside the supermarket or whatever it is. I use my good judgment. Uh, most of them would ask me, Pastor, I, I need to, to, to buy lunch. I don't have lunch. I don't have food, whatever it is. Now, if a guy has been there the whole day, I'm not going to buy a lunch for him because he's been getting... Some people just take advantage of people, and, and, and really, begging has become a trade. It's a, it's a business, quite frankly, in some places. So you've got to use your discernment and your judgment. The other thing is, a lot of these people use this money for drugs. And uh, so you don't want to facilitate the access to drugs by giving them money. In a case like that, I would suggest to you, quite frankly, that it is not that passage is not designed to cause you to not use your intelligence. You must always use your brain and use your mind. God has given you that to use, and you've got to use your good judgment. If you know the situation, you know the person, it may be better than giving them money, um, buy them a drink or buy them... Um, uh, a meal, but if you are fearful of the abuse of the money, 
and uh, that it will only encourage them to continue down the line of using drugs, I would not advise you to to, to, to give uh, money to the person like that. But use your judgment. But wherever you can show kindness and you are aware that things are tight and the person is not working or whatever, always try to put yourself in that situation or put your son or put your mother in that situation. It will cause you to be more compassionate in dealing with these people. But you have to have a balance. Do they really, really, are they really, really hungry? Do they really need a meal? In a case that you can help them. But is this just a trick they're playing to get money and then let them go after the drug addict? Again, you have to use your judgment on those kind of matters. And I think that's what God expects us to do. Not everybody's going to give me $10. You don't give everybody $10 to ask you $10. But what are you going to do with the $10 or the $15? Use your judgment, but always be inclined where there's a genuine need and you know there's a genuine need and you could help in that. Uh, but where you think there's a a scam going on or it's going to be abused what you give them uh, give them something to eat rather than buy something for them to eat rather than give them the money themselves a few years back I bought a gentleman well, I bought a man a meal because he said he was hungry I got back in the vehicle and before I drove away I saw him switching cash with the meal with someone else <laughs> unfortunately a, discouraged me from doing it again it's a business it's a business yeah. and it depends too on your pigmentation so they mm-hmm. take you for a ride your pigmentation would not be uh, they, they know who to come to who, who to come to we're talking about the topic of forgiveness we got about three minutes left in this episode pastor is it true that to forgive means I must forget the past or any hurt that has been done to me? I can't find anywhere in the Bible where this is an expectation or a command that is given either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Quite frankly, uh, common sense tells you it is virtually impossible to forget what somebody has done, especially if they've done hurt to you. so the the idea of forgiveness and having instant memory loss or uh, this kind of thing is just an, a delusion, an illusion, quite frankly. Um, so I, I don't think that is possible. However, I do feel that if the person who is uh, hurt is repentant and they're given evidence of that repentance by what the Bible calls fruit of repentance, I do feel that it it, it, it eases the pain and the, and the burden that is on you, and it inclines you to um, view the person very favorably, and you will find that over time, as this person demonstrates this fruit of repentance, quite frankly, uh, the pain uh, and the scar of that memory now loses its, its power on you, and to the point where the hurt is almost as though it's non-existent. But that can only come not by an act of your will. That can only come where there is true fruit of repentance. And and that's where, you know, somebody would tell you, you know, but I, I want, you should forgive me. You should forget that I did. But again, uh, as that person demonstrating any evidence of the fruit of repentance, I can only see the fruit. The Bible asks, asks us to be fruit inspectors. By your fruit, you should know them. So that is, if you want me to forget and uh, you want me to lessen the impact, it has to be, I see evidence of true, genuine repentance uh, on the person, which has to do with the fruit of, of the whole matter. As we wrap up this episode, Pastor, what is the cost of not forgiving? Well, rather, this it's very, very costly. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the, the shocking things uh, about re- repentance uh, and not repenting or not, not 
seeking forgiveness or granting forgiveness to, to a person, um, it affects you in different ways. And if we had time to go through the biblical teaching on this matter, it could take a little bit of time. So I'll just mention a few things that uh, people should be aware of. For example, one of the things that might shock some people is that even the secular universities like John Hopkins University uh, indicates that a person who doesn't forgive, it has some real negative impacts upon the person physically. So there's a lot of um, physical effects that you can have, like depression. Uh, you can actually feel sometimes uh, your pain in your in your joints, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's not a slight matter uh, that you are holding a grudge or you find you're getting bitter on the inside. Uh, that will affect you physically. It's something called psychosomatic sickness. As a matter of fact, that is confirmed in the Psalms. Uh, when you read the Psalms of David, you'll often find that David talks about his bones are aching and his bones are broken. What David is using there is a synecdoche, a, a, a literary expression where he's using part of the body to explain the whole body, but he's talking about the pain that's within him. So maybe next time we can deal in more detail, but it will affect you if you don't learn to forgive and you don't learn to pardon. And you believe that the Bible has the true manual for how we should go about forgiving? Oh, yeah. I mean, we can want a better example of better all in Christ, or even Stephen. Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Stephen said, Lord, hold this thing not to their charge. Not, they didn't even deserve that. So we have models of the excellence of forgiveness and pardon. Be sure that you tune in next week as we, Lord willing, continue this topic of forgiveness. Stay safe and have a blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.